But we turn now to 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1-11. through 11. Hear now the very words of God. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Thanks be to God. We all at one point were students, and many among us either are or have been teachers. There's a common phrase as you get toward the end of the semester. I can see the light at the end of the tunnel. What stands between you and the end of the tunnel might be a mountain of papers and exams. But this phrase, I can see light at the end of the tunnel, speaks of hope that rest is coming and speaks of fatigue now, but it inspires you to keep going. You're almost there. It defines your perspective and it keeps you focused on the end. Yes, the papers and exams stand between here and there, but because we're headed there, we can get through this. Maybe that speaks specifically to your situation right now. Or maybe you're not yet feeling the burden of the exams because maybe they're still a few weeks away. But the point remains. So often we as people, not just as students and teachers, but as people, lose sight of where we've come from and where we're going. Even Christians, we get caught up in the pleasures or the burdens of today and we forget to think about where we're going and how we're going to spend the rest of our time here in the flesh. Peter tells us in his passage today, the rest of your time on earth matters. Live it with an eternal perspective. So we will look at this passage, of course, in three parts. First, we'll look at how the rest of our time is in Christ. 
The rest of our time is in Christ. And then we'll look at how the rest of our time is not our past. The rest of our time is not our past. And then lastly, the rest of our time is defined by the future. So let's look at how the rest of our time is in Christ. We'll look specifically at verses 1 and 2 here. As Christians, we operate differently than we used to. We have a new will. We've died to sin with Christ. And as Peter says, live for the rest of the time in the flesh. He's not talking about living according to sinful desires. He's talking about this normal life that we live on this earth. Live for the rest of the time in the flesh. It indicates that we are in this world, but we are not of this world. We exist in physical bodies like all people do, but we are in reality, spiritual people who live according to the will of God. This is not to deny our physical nature because Christ is still in his physical body. And it is the physical resurrection that we anticipate along with the resurrection of our souls. And in this passage, Peter states three things that are a little bit puzzling. First of all, he says, arm yourselves with Christ's way of thinking As you endure suffering, arm yourselves with Christ's way of thinking. Well, we have to remember, what's he speaking of? What kind of suffering did Christ endure? It was the greatest suffering. He gave himself up to death. Yes, I am starting the sermon with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus took on the sin of the world. He carried the heaviest burden of all and the dreaded cross. And he too dreaded the cross as he anticipated that it drew nearer and he was mocked and he was beaten, but he endured it without reviling in return. He viewed suffering very differently than the natural person does. He didn't see suffering as a loss, but he saw it as the way to victory. The way down is the way up, as the Puritans said. He gave himself up. Jesus gave himself up. He endured the suffering so that anyone who believes in him might find life in him. Anyone who looks to Jesus to be rescued from their sin receives eternal life because of their union to Christ by faith. Peter's reminding these Christians who believe this, that way of suffering is your pattern. And therefore, Christians are to arm themselves with the same way of thinking, Christians, too, are to see suffering not as weakness, but as victory, with determination to obey God's will, like Jesus did. Christ did not fear those who could kill his body alone. He wanted to do God's will. He even said, not my will, but yours be done. The job of Christians, then, is to arm ourselves with that same way of thinking. This language of arming yourself indicates that this is a fight, and indeed it is. This is a fight against the flesh, which Peter has already told us wages war against our souls. How then do we prepare to fight back against the evil that is waging war? The evil we see outside, the evil we see even in our own hearts. We do it by arming ourselves with the mind of Christ. Let Christ be our shield to protect us and our sword to attack our foes. By arming ourselves with the mind of Christ, we view suffering as the way to victory, and obedience as the path of life, just like Christ did. 
and we put to death the deeds of the flesh. And it reinforces that guarantee of salvation we find in Christ. Let me remind you, however, it's not your valiant effort or your success in fighting off the enemy that saves you because Christ has already done it. It's in his strength that we stand so that we might also fight against the enemies around us. And so we arm ourselves with the way that Christ thought about his suffering so that we might stand in his strength. So Peter says that we are to arm ourselves with Christ's way of thinking. He also says in verse 1, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. This is indeed a puzzling phrase. Does this mean that if you suffer, you no longer sin? Does this mean that suffering itself purges sin from your life? I don't think Peter is saying either of these things. What Peter's saying is that Christians who have suffered for doing good, there is evidence in their lives that they have chosen that path of obedience. There's evidence that they have chosen to die to sin. They have taken up their cross because they are united to Christ. And so therefore it is Christ's suffering and death that have killed their sin for them. So when you are able to endure suffering for doing good, you stand upon Christ, whose death has killed your sin, and therefore sin no longer reigns in you. So because you suffer and are in Christ, sin no longer has power over you. Christians have died to sin, and we now live to righteousness, as Paul says it. In Romans 6, verses 11 and 12, he says, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin. Now, many of you know, in the very next chapter, he goes on to say that he's still wrestling against it. He's not saying the sin is totally gone. We're not perfect before that last day, but we are no longer dominated by sin. It no longer reigns in our hearts. Paul says that in Romans 6, 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Peter says, obey the will of God, not these earthly passions. And for those who are in Christ, have good news. You're no longer by definition, a sinner. You have been freed from that. You are now, by definition, in Christ, and you are righteous. Therefore, we can suffer like Christ. And so we live as if we have died to sin. We live as if those, we are those who have ceased from sin, and therefore we can suffer in the flesh like Christ would. Peter also says in verse 2, Christians live the rest of their time in the flesh, not for human passions, but for the will of God. You and I, we can either live for the easy life, trying to avoid conflict, trying to find the comfortable route, or we can obey God. Either we can live in the passions of indulgence and sensuality and seeking the next high or the next vacation or the next party, or we can deny the demands of this fleshly shell, these demands that it places on our hearts, and we can instead be satisfied with Christ, living by his spirit within us. We live according to the spirit, not according to the flesh. And by choosing to live by the spirit, a Christian proves his commitment to die to self and to die to sin with Christ. And such a thing proves that we don't have an earthly master anymore. We're no longer slave to our earthly desires. And then we can say with Christ, even as we suffer, not my will, but yours be done, O Father. 
Not my short-term search for satisfaction that ends up truly in dissatisfaction, but instead your eternal, glorious, sufficient will be done. Now, all three of these concepts that Peter has brought up, they actually explain themselves when you look at them together. For those who look to Christ and find life in Christ's suffering, they think like he does. They think according to the will of God. Therefore, they have died to self and to sin, which was crucified with Christ, so that they can endure the sufferings of this earthly life as Christ did, because they have chosen obedience to God, empowered by the Spirit's work, not serving sin or human passions, but with the singular focus of glorifying God, just like Jesus did as he endured the cross. The rest of our time is in Jesus. The rest of our time on this earth, we live in Christ and we are no longer slave to the flesh. Let's look at how the rest of our time is not our past. Another way to say it is what's happened in the past in your life does not define your present. This is good news for sinners. So if you are a sinner, this is good news. Of course, therefore, this is good news for every single one of us. Christians now live in the way of life. We live in the path of life because judgment is going to come to all people. Peter opens this verse three, it seems like with a bit of sarcasm. He says, for the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. The time that you've lived in the flesh and in sensuality, that's enough. You've you've gotten enough time in sin. He's, he's saying, don't any longer do what the Gentiles want to do. And he lists sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. I want you to think about your own sin right now. That's a little bit discouraging when I tell you to think about your own sin after listing all those, right? But think about your arch nemesis sin or sins. The kind of thing that when it pops into your head, or shows itself in front of you, you feel like there's no option, you have to give in. Any fighting feels futile. This is the attitude, this is the approach that dominates the unbeliever's way of living. Sin rules, and we must give in to what we want to do if we are, no long, if we are not in Christ and we are still slave to our sins. But rather than putting up a fight so many people live as willful slaves to the desires of the flesh, and they brag about pursuing their pleasure over anything else. But we who have seen life, tasted of it in Christ, know that that way leads to death. Peter is not guilting believers who have engaged in these things. And I'm not here to soften the reality of sin and the guilt of sin and the damage that sin does. Because Peter also is implying to some of these believers, some of you still need to stop doing these things. You've had enough time living like the Gentiles do. That's your old way of living. Let's cease from that now and live as those who are united to Christ. That's how you used to live. That's your old self. When you were still a slave to sin, that's what life looked like. That is not who you are anymore. Again, Paul says this similarly, Romans 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can he who died to sin still live in it? 
You've died to sin, brothers and sisters. You don't have to live in it any longer. In Colossians 3, Paul also says, And these two you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. We no longer live in these sins. The time to live like that is past. Peter says, look forward from here. You've had enough time in your sins. All the fruit of sensuality and greed and sinfulness has been harvested. If you were to continue to live in sensuality and greed and sin and these things that tug on your heart, you would not get another ounce of benefit because there is no benefit in that way of living. The time has passed to live in sin. You've had enough time in sin. Let us now live for something greater. And Peter says, when you make this decision, your old buddies are going to be offended. They're going to be surprised. And they're going to even malign you. Imagine... John, Jack, and Joe have had a routine of gambling together every Thursday evening for 15 years. Joe has been given spiritual life by the Spirit's work. He clings to Christ and he has been transformed by that gospel and he decides he can no longer in good conscience join the gambling group. He cannot step out of that group, however, without ripple effects of some kind. Relational stress at the least. John and Jack will feel judged and hurt. Not to mention, surprised. Where did this come from? How did you change all of a sudden? And Joe will be saddened in a real way for the death of an old loyalty because he now has bursting forth a greater loyalty to Christ. John and Jack may retaliate or, as Peter says, malign Joe, but he must no longer live according to his flesh. That is not to say that there's no way for Joe to salvage a relationship or continue to be their friend. But that Thursday night gathering is no longer an option for him and his conscience as he lives with Christ. What about those Christians in Asia Minor to who Peter's writing? Well, the types of things that they are stepping out of in their culture, they're not just gambling groups. They are patriotic and civil celebrations. They are lifelong relationships and even family gatherings. Let me read to you some historical context here from a scholar, uh, Dr. Job's. Pagans of the first century viewed Christians as killjoys who lived gloomy lives devoid of pleasure. The pleasures from which Christians typically abstained were the popular forms of Roman entertainment, the theater with its risque performances, the chariot races, and the gladiatorial fights with their blood and gore. The alcohol-fueled festivals of Roman culture were typically focused on devotion to a god or a goddess, making them idolatrous to Jewish and Christian beliefs. Christian lifestyle also condemned the so-called pleasures of an indulgent temper, sex outside of marriage, drinking, slander, lying, covetousness, and theft. These attitudes toward contemporary Roman customs and morals, combined with the Christians' refusal to burn incense to the emperor, earned Christians the reputation of being haters of humanity and traitors to the Roman way of life. For them to step out of the life that they used to live is going to bring great changes to them. 
Yet how these Christians were judged by their culture is not the final judgment. Peter is encouraging them saying, you may be maligned and you may be ostracized and you may be hurt. And if we view ourselves as united to the world, first and foremost, then that kind of judgment is going to shatter us. But Peter's reminding them, you are united to Christ. And so you have a great judge who will be the final arbiter of justice at the end of history. They do not have the final say. This world cannot condemn you. Instead, those who continue in these sins will give account. Judgment remains for all, Peter tells us. Verse 5, Peter says, But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Everyone will be judged by this great judge on that last day of judgment. And some of them are bringing an argument against the Christians saying, What are you doing? You're giving up all the pleasures of this world. You're giving up all your relationships with your, your neighbors and your civic duty. And you're giving up all these joys and I've seen Christians die and they're just as dead as my, my pagan friends. So what are you doing, Christians? Why are you sacrificing all this if you're just going to die? And that was especially poignant as an argument back then because many pagans believed that once death comes, there is no more judgment. There is nothing beyond that. But Peter says, yeah, Christians have died. Christians have been judged in the flesh the way people are. They were ridiculed by the world. They have died a physical death. But there is still a judgment day coming. There is still a day where right and wrong will be decided by God himself. Though these Christians have died, yet they have something so much greater beyond the grave. They have life. They live in the spirit the way God does, he says in verse 6. That's why the gospel must be preached to all, so that those who die might find that life in Jesus Christ. Yes, the first death has won briefly for some, but only for a time. The second death has no claim on those who are united to Christ. This coming judgment encourages these believers, but also it inspires holiness and obedience in their lives. So I, I uh, bring to you what you've probably heard from your philosophy classes or humanities classes, Pascal's wager. There are four options. Either God exists or God does not exist, and either you believe or you do not believe. The Christians believe that God exists. And if he does not, the Christians have forfeited their finite life. They have given up the pleasures of this world for a time to reap no benefit beyond the grave. Non-believers, if they don't believe in God, but God does exist, they have gained a short time of joy on this earth, but they have lost eternity. And this is not an argument to try to win somebody to Christ. This has been most helpful for me as a way to encourage me as I think, how should I be living? Let me remember that if I sacrifice my life today, there is eternal life that comes. And there is benefit for those who are in Christ coming, a great inheritance that Peter has reminded his readers of since the very beginning of the letter. The short-term loss 
is nothing compared to the eternal gain. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet lose his soul? Whoever wants to find his life must lose it. No one can imagine what God has prepared for those who love him. And coming judgment, to which Peter points here, guarantees life after death for believers. Death does not have that final say. We read it during our confession of faith. Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 38. What benefits do believers receive from Christ at the resurrection? It's important to note that this is only benefit that comes to those who are in Christ because it comes from Christ to his people. And it's this, at the resurrection, believers being raised up in glory shall be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment and made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God to all eternity. It's a great joy that we have to look forward to. It's a great joy that many of our loved ones are embracing and enjoying right now. So if we can face death with that kind of hope, we have nothing to fear when we face suffering on this earth. So put to death the former ways of sin in which you once walked. And when you face criticism and scoffing and ridicule from it, from the people in the world, rejoice. For there's life beyond this grave. These lowercase j judges that we live among are not the final say. The true judge will extend a glorious welcome to all who rest in Christ. His celestial city lies for us beyond these sufferings and beyond death, and it is a place whose beauty and glory are inexpressible. For it is where we will walk and talk every day with the King for all eternity. Our past is not the rest of our time. Now let's look at the third point. The rest of our time is defined by the future. The rest of our time is defined by the future. Christians, we live now with the finish line in sight, and we have one goal. And that goal is to the demise of worldliness and selfishness. The end is coming. It's a glorious end. It's an end that terrifies those who are dominated by their sin. It is a hopeful end, however. An end with great victory for those who are united to Christ. Jesus is going to appear. And all the world will bow their knees to him. Some in faith and some out of frustration. But Jesus will reign. And we who trust in him are not going to receive judgment for our sin, but we will instead be placed in the seat of honor and we will reign with Jesus Christ, enjoying that victorious, pure, holy fellowship with God and with his people forever. This is true, whether you believe it or not. We must operate with the urgency of the end upon us. We live in the final stage of history. And I'm not saying I'm trying to match up prophecies from the Old Testament or New Testament with events of today. What I'm saying is there is nothing left before Christ comes back in terms of the eschatological trajectory of time. Christ has come. We are living both in the already and the not yet. And the next thing is that Jesus is coming back and it will be like a thief in the night. Imagine... Frodo journeys from the Shire through Bree to Rivendell and on. And all the while, the fellowship endures Helm's Deep. And Frodo gets to the Black Gate with the end in sight and says, 
this is too hard, and he goes home. Or imagine a burning building where a young woman has fled her office. She's gone down the stairs and she sustained an ankle sprain in the haste. And in the final hallway, she sees the exit doors 30 feet ahead. And in that moment, the ceiling tiles collapse in front of her, creating one final mound of rubble to climb over. And then she's out. But instead, she decides not to climb the final pile of rubble and she sits down and gives up. Peter is telling the Christians in Asia Minor to let the sight of the end Drive them forward. Keep that eternal perspective. Keep that eternal gospel motivation. Keep that eternal Christ focus. Be instead like the runner who has run the longest race of her life. 26 miles in, she's exhausted, yet maintains the lead by 30 seconds. She deliberates in her head whether she has it to keep going. But as she rounds the corner out of the woods, she sees that finish line on the other side of the small field. And it inspires her not to sit down and quit, but to keep her eyes set and to give it all she has. The end pulls us forward. And Peter says, here's what it looks like for you to be pulled forward to the end. He gives them some specifics. The first one he tells them is to pray. So in these end times, brothers and sisters, we too, like the believers to whom Peter wrote, who were also living in the end times, our challenge is to pray. Peter says, pray in dependence upon God's strength for each of these final steps that you take. Be self-controlled. Let your actions show that sin does not reign in your life anymore. And be sober-minded. Let your thoughts be found always in heaven, in your true hope, and not caught in the snares of the world, so that your prayers are of a godly kind. Peter implies, pray urgently. Be always praying for God's kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, and expect him to hear your prayer and to answer your prayer. Pray that you might be kept from temptation. Pray that the gathering of the saints would be all the more rich and intentional and sweet, especially as we see the day drawing near. Pray that nothing would come between you and your God to whom you're running. Pray that the kingdom of darkness would release its grip on your neighbors and your family and pray that the spirit would breathe life into them as he continues to uphold you. Jesus, as he faced the cross, cried out to his Father. His final words, he cried out to the Father. Let's cry out in these final steps as we face the end. And then Peter says, you also are going to change how you treat each other now that the end's coming near. And this treatment is going to be dominated by love for one another. Multiple times in the book so far, he's talked about this brotherly love. Chapter 1, verse 22, he says, For a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Chapter 2, verse 17, love the brotherhood. And in chapter 3, 8 as well, brotherly love. This is the kind of brotherly love 
that covers a multitude of sins, Peter says. Now, this, this phrase can be misconstrued. It doesn't mean that we just cover up each other's sins and try to hide them. And it doesn't mean that God just covers up the sins of his people because we decide to love them. What this means is that when you love a brother or a sister, as you have been loved by Christ, your love for them drives you to forgiveness. This love for one another stops sin dead in its tracks. Let's, let's take, for instance, um, let's, say, let's assume I, I, I've wronged one of you, and, and I, I have and I will again. That's the nature of being a part of the body of Christ. But Peter commands that in such a situation, your earnest love for me either passes over my sin without retaliation and therefore stops my sin in its tracks as you forgive me in your heart or if necessary, you address it to me and we seek reconciliation. What this means is that our brotherly love for one another does not hold sins against each other. As we have been forgiven much, so we forgive much. Our love for one another operates with an assumed humility and grace on both sides. And that is part of how earnest love creates a community of grace and life in the church. All reflecting, of course, the love that we have from our Heavenly Father. Peter also says, because the end is near, show hospitality. Now, I think we need, as Americans, to go ahead and expel one image of hospitality out of our mind. It's not entertaining. It's not setting out the most beautiful charcuterie board. It's not setting up the magazine home with interior decoration to impress anyone. No, in fact, Peter is saying quite the opposite. Your hospitality means you're going to have to release this image of the magazine home because some people are grumbling. When people come into your house, they track mud on the carpet. When people come into your house, they eat your food. When people come into your house, they overstay their welcome. Don't grumble, Peter says. Be a place that loves each other well. Show hospitality. Not to show people how fancy you are. Not to impress them, but out of love for them. When I was in college, um, this, this family at my church uh, was, was a center of gospel hospitality for me. And after church every Sunday, just about, I would go to their house for lunch. And they had five kids, and it was never picked up for me as their company. I was not company to them. I became family to them. And they welcomed me to sit around the table and pray with them and endure the chaos that ensued. And they even invited me to live with them when my lease ran out. At the end of my time in college, they said, sure, come and live in our house. And that's pretty close to the type of hospitality that Peter's talking about here. Have people in your lives. Have people in your homes, especially to a church that doesn't have buildings. Meet together. We already have one family here that welcomes us twice a month into their home to gather as the church. And we track mud on their carpets. And for these Christians in Asia Minor, there are many who were probably kicked out of their homes because they have left the Gentile way of thinking and they now need a new place to live. Show hospitality without grumbling, Peter says. Especially, let's think about those in our community who are hurting. Those who are looking for a place 
to feel welcome and to belong. I don't know about you, but the college days were not easy days for me, being far from home. Maybe you need to invite a college student or a visitor to come have lunch with you. It must be a place of hospitality and welcome. And this is also a love that we have for one another, for members of this church. And for a sen- in a sense, then, our hospitality is not just for special events. This is an all-time thing for us to love one another by welcoming each other to our homes long-term, until the end comes. And lastly, Peter says, share your gifts. He says, whatever you speak, and what, however you serve, that, that phrase, speaking and serving, word and deed, it's kind of an enveloping statement that says, whatever you do, share. Colossians 3 says, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And when you speak, speak as one who's speaking oracles of God. How can you speak an oracle of God? By speaking this. These are the oracles of God. God has given us the prophets and the apostles. Let us be people whose words are filled with the truth of the gospel. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And then Peter says to serve. The rest of this life is not for you to accumulate as much as you can or to be served. It is about serving because Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. And this is generally keeping our eyes looking outward toward the needs of others. It means helping those who you know need help. It means stepping up to serve in the church when the need arises, even if it's an imposition on your time or your sleep. And I must say, so many of you do this so well. As a church plant, it takes extra work on the part of those who are involved. And you're doing this so well. And in so many ways, the words that are spoken among us are so filled with the truth of Scripture that I think that we can look at this and say, thank you, Lord, for helping us as we speak and serve well as the body of Christ. That doesn't mean get lazy and we've arrived. It means keep going, especially as we see the end in sight. Why? Because as John the Baptist said, he must increase, I must decrease. That is our job as believers. To the glory of God and to Christ, the head of the church, he must increase As we decrease, because on that last day, there will be no glory greater in this world or in the mind of any person than the glory of our God. And so Peter ends with this doxology in verse 11. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. As you suffer, as you love, as you welcome, as you serve, as you speak, It's to the glory of God. It's to the glory of God through Jesus Christ, to whom we are united. And you see how Peter's theology has now led to worship. The information turns to the pouring out of his heart and his praise. And so the obedience in our lives, brothers and sisters, even amidst the suffering that we must endure, results in the praise of our God in everything. Yes, even your suffering and your service and your hospitality and your love, God is glorified. His is the glory. His is the dominion forever and ever, no matter what it seems when we're maligned today. Let's keep going.
as we do well the rest of our time. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for strengthening us, for giving us your spirit, for giving us your word. Would we be those who are filled with the gospel of Jesus Christ, who speak it, who, being changed by it, live out of love for one another, to the glory of Jesus Christ. Without Jesus, this is all futile. If in Christ we have hope for this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied, but in him we have hope for eternity. We praise you for Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.